turn to the 11th chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 11. Bertrand Russell, who was, uh, among other things, a very renowned British mathematician, he wrote an essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. He was not a fan of the Christian faith. He cited this story that we're going to read this morning from verses 12 through 14 as a reason, as one of his reasons for rejecting Christianity. He said that it displayed Jesus as a vindictive, angry man who lost his temper and cursed an innocent tree. Jesus was petty, Bertrand Russell thought. So there were certainly others more righteous than he, and he most certainly, if he was angry at a fig tree, could not be the Son of God. Even Christians sometimes can struggle with this story. It's, some say it's a waste or was a waste of supernatural power to just be angry at this fig tree. The problem with that is that even on the surface it's hard to understand is that Jesus is never not in control. If you'll permit me a double negative. He's never not in control of the situation. And maybe, like most true things, we don't know what it's like to have truly righteous anger. So we see this and just think Jesus has a short fuse like everybody else does. It's the beginning of Passion Week here. In fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, Jesus has entered Jerusalem as the King. What He's about to do here is the first of His authoritative actions as Messiah in Jerusalem. There's no more secret now. The secret is ending about his identity. The Jewish leaders have been scheming, as we've seen for some time, to kill Jesus, but now their plots intensify. Now they're ready to put that plan into action. And Jesus' actions during this week only helped to speed up their plans. But that was the point. Jesus had come for this. And judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem also, as this section reveals in Chapter 13, Israel had continually rejected the prophets, which culminates in their crucifixion of the prophet promised by Moses, the Lord Jesus. They have even abused the temple where God intended to be met and worshipped. We will, I think, understand the curse of the fig tree properly by noticing the fact that the cleansing of the temple is placed in between these two fig tree scenes in this chapter. Jesus had come to lead his people out of exile and bondage to death and the law. And God has had enough of Israel's hypocrisy. They claim to know him. They claim to be his people to follow and obey him. They believed either by their ethnicity, but certainly by their good works that God would accept them and vindicate them. They looked godly and they were not. As R.T. France says, they were all leaves And no fruit. And this is how we understand this section. Beloved, this morning, is this true of us? Are we all leaves and no fruit? Do we need to repent personally or as a church of trying to appear to be something we aren't? Or of trying to appear, merely appear righteous? That's where all our effort goes. That's where... All our focus goes on looking righteous rather than truly being righteous. Is this true of any of us or is this true maybe of us as a people? Jesus cursed the fig tree for its lack of fruit just before he cleansed the outer court of the temple in judgment of Israel's hypocrisy, calling his disciples 
to their desperate need for faith to bear the fruit that is actually pleasing to God. God's will for His redeemed people is to bear fruit that is pleasing to Him. But that can only be the result of faith in Jesus as our only Savior, not by our own effort. Let's pray and we'll look at God's Word together. Father, fill me with Your Holy Spirit for this sermon. God, help me speak. Take over my mind. Turn it towards You. Control the words that come out of my mouth. Have Your way with me. Help me, Father, I pray. Help our congregation. Help us all hear and receive this Word with brokenness. I ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning at verse 12 in Mark chapter 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So this is the next day. After his triumphal entry, he's returning to Jerusalem from Bethany, and Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree with leaves on it, but it's not the season for figs. In verse 14, he curses the tree. Mark breaks up the fig tree episode, but in verse 21, which we'll see in a few minutes, the next day, Peter says, look, it's withered away to its roots, the fig, to its roots, the fig tree that you cursed. This is the only miracle of destruction in the Gospels that we find. Why? Was Bertrand Russell right? Was Jesus petty? Was he short-tempered and vindictive? Was he just grouchy because he was hungry? We've all been there, right? We had the power to curse a Perkins for taking too long to bring our food. We might do that. You never know. But is that the problem here? It's If it's not the season for figs, Jesus would have known that. Why would Jesus think the fig tree would have figs on it, beloved? Because it had leaves on it. Jesus is God in human flesh. Israel had been the recipient of God's mercy, of God's covenant. These were his people. And just like the tree, if there were leaves, there should have been figs. Either Jesus actually knew it didn't have figs, picked the tree on purpose, used the occasion to make a point about a climactic point here in his final week about Israel's sinfulness before God, or... It also could be in his humanity for this moment. He believed the tree had figs since it had leaves. Either way, the point is clear. Where there are leaves on a fig tree, there should be figs. Even, uh, I forget the name of um, the first kind of a fig that will come out when they're out of season on certain fig-bearing trees. Not a full fig, but enough to eat. Where there is God's mercy, where there is God's covenant love, like where there are leaves, there should be fruit. Fall is fig season actually in Palestine, and a vast majority of fig trees bear fruit in that season. But there are a few rare species that bear fruit outside of the normal season. Well, how did a person know it was one of those? Whether a fig tree was one of the rarer species that did this, by whether or not a tree was in bloom out of season, by whether or not it had leaves. Jesus knew all this better than anyone. He saw a fig tree in bloom, Expected figs would be on the tree when he stopped or knew that figs weren't on the tree. 
But he stopped. He found none. It was barren. That is what provides the context for his disciples and for what we're about to see our Lord Jesus do here. He is a prophet. He's the prophet. Prophets tend to use things from everyday life to make their point. Amos and the plumb line. We know things about Jeremiah and Isaiah and God's prophets. This tree symbolized the nation of Israel. It illustrated the sin of hypocrisy. Remember Jesus' warnings about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the religious leadership in Israel had leavened the whole nation until the nation of Israel was barren, producing no fruit for God despite outward works and conformity to at least much of the law. The tree had the appearance of fruitfulness but was actually barren. This is cursed by Jesus. Just like Israel, all leaves no fruit, and God has had enough. John the Baptist was right. The Son of Man, the Messiah, has come laying the axe to the root of the trees, and he is about to cut Israel down. That is why Mark, in his telling of the gospel, interrupts the fig tree lesson with this next scene. So we pick it up in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus is provoked to righteous indignation. And by the way, Jesus Christ is probably the only person that ever walked the earth that can really pull that off. In complete godliness and purity. Righteous indignation. Jesus isn't mad that people don't agree with his views Per se. Jesus is angry because his father and his father's will are being dishonored and made light of. He is furious with what is happening in the temple. The temple in Herod's day, it was amazing. It was a, I believe it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was divided up. It was a huge complex divided up into four parts. The court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Jews. And the Holy of Holies. And the court of Gentiles, that outer court, was the largest part. So the design of the temple included a place for non-Jewish people to congregate because God had called Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, to be a blessing, remember, to all nations. Israel had a mission of proclaiming truth or the truth of God to all people, not just amongst themselves. The court of the Gentiles on the outer edges of the temple, or was on the outer edges of the temple, but... Gentiles were still at least able to be present, to know the Lord, to fear the Lord. First Kings 8, 43. But many Jews, mainly those in religious leadership, hated the Gentiles. And they hoped that when the Messiah came, he would cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Right? And get rid of them once and for all. And this disregard, whether it was hatred or just disregard among many of them, for the Gentiles led the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin to turn the outer court of the Gentiles into a, basically a stockyard for commercial gain. And so the sale of animals for sacrifice was one of the most lucrative sources of income 
for the Sanhedrin. For Passover, this feast obligation for every Jew as well as for every God-fearing Gentile, Jewish people streamed into the city, people from all parts of the ancient world, needing to buy sheep and other animals for sacrifices as well as exchange currency to be able to buy the animals in the first place. And so the animals themselves are marked up, sold for a premium because people needed them, right? You can't bring your own popcorn into the movies. You got to pay $7,000 for their popcorn, right? You can't, you go to a football game, you can't bring in your own hot dogs. You got to pay $4 for a hot dog. You can buy two packs of Bar S hot dogs for $2, but there you're stuck, right? You got to buy their hot dogs. And the exchange rate of currency is jacked up so high because people had no choice. Josephus, the Jewish historian, recorded that in 66 AD, when the Romans were coming against Jerusalem, 255,000 lambs were slaughtered during Passover. So you can imagine the massive business, the massive revenue generator, this had the potential to be for the Sanhedrin. And again, Jesus was furious about this. What if you were too poor to afford an, uh, to afford an animal for the sacrifice or to exchange money? What if someone that wanted to was prevented in the outer court from making a sacrifice to God? What if you were too busy or it was too busy to get or to make your purchase? Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it, speaking to the Sanhedrin, the leadership in the temple, you have made it a den of robbers. As other gospels tell us, Jesus made a whip of cords. I love that image of Jesus watching all of this, making the whip of cords around his hands, kicked over tables, drove money changers and animals out of the temple, cleansing it. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, a text which promised God's acceptance of foreign worshipers who honored the covenant. So Jesus didn't cleanse the temple of Gentiles, but cleansed it for Gentiles. Jesus has the authority to structure his own house, his own people. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. God desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So he has the right to structure his house in accordance with his purpose, right? Driving out anything that would get in the way of his clearly revealed purpose. God desired worshipers from every nation to gather around him. And the temple's purpose had been perverted by the Sanhedrin. They're pushing out rather than gathering in. In verses 18 and 19, then Jesus has finally gone too far. Right? He's finally gone too far. He's not only ruining their revenue stream, he is presuming ultimate authority over the religious system of Israel. And so they plot to take his life, and this time they're going to succeed. In texts like Hosea 9, And Jeremiah 24, Israel was God's fig tree. And here Jesus reveals they are barren. Israel had proven unfruitful in God's purpose for her. Her worship was pure hypocrisy. That was Jesus' basic critique of the religious leadership in his day. And in that covenant, as went the leadership, so went the nation. As the fig tree was cursed, so was Israel. Cursed thing is fit only to be Cast into the fire. We pick it up in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, probably the Mount of Olives, 
he's referring to, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, doing what he just said, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. How could Israel be cursed and barren? In other words, rotten to its core and therefore fruitless. The religious leadership in Israel seemed dedicated, were dedicated, whether it was off base or not, dedicated to knowing the scriptures, dedicated to following the law, sometimes to the letter, but had come to believe in some sense that it was this about them. It was their works, their ethnicity even, that merited God's favor. They came to believe, I think as Paul reveals in Galatians 3, 17, that Mosaic law-keeping replaced the grace of God in the Abrahamic covenant as the means of obtaining the promise. So clearly, works that are put forward to gain and keep God's favor are never enough and will only twist our hearts, as it did theirs, into prideful hypocrisy. Law-keeping somehow does not lead to the righteousness God actually requires Our righteousness, if it is pleasing to God, is only an act of His grace. It is only the fruit of His Spirit. We are barren. We cannot produce good works for God. So if we start thinking we can, whatever comes out is not fruit that is pleasing to Him. That's why Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe in Romans 10.4. So in Matthew's account, for example... Of this episode in Matthew 21, 43, Jesus says Israel's curse means the kingdom will be taken away from Israel and given to a people producing its fruits. Which, by the way, that kingdom is built on the gospel foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? Not on the works of its adherents. That is a tall order, beloved. That's a tall order. Producing fruit that is glorifying to God who is holy and perfect and searches our hearts and knows the intentions. His word divides us, splits us open for God to see everything about us. You mean the kingdom is only for people that can produce fruit that did glorify God? Beloved, listen, we're not over Israel here. If these men could not produce fruit that is glorifying to God, how in the world might we? How would the disciples respond? That's really what Mark has been focusing on here. How will the disciples respond to what Jesus is saying? That's the pressing question. We've been reading throughout the last few chapters of Mark very intentionally from him of the increasing misunderstanding, the increasing hard-heartedness of the disciples through this whole episode. How could they, they're probably asking, maybe asking in their heads, how could they produce the fruit God desired if the whole religious system they grew up under had not only failed to do so, but instead had produced hypocrites who were not glorifying to God. How are you supposed to do that then? They might have been asking. And as we hear this, beloved, how do you and I respond to such a thing? The Pharisees didn't disappear. We just don't call them that anymore. There's the same thing running through God's people. We, we, 
Are we sure that the works we do are glorifying to God? They may be pleasing to people. They may be very good things. Are they glorifying God? That rests in the reason we do them and the source we think there is for them. What is our response as people in this church when we hear our Lord say that to be His new covenant people is to produce the fruit God intended for His people to produce? Again, we've never seen the Red Sea split. We've never been by the mountain and been afraid. We've, we've never seen the things Old Covenant Israel saw. And look at their condition by the time we get to Jesus. How in the world, over 2,000 years removed from all of this, are we going to produce fruit that God requires that is actually pleasing to Him? We, we know that by nature we think we can because that's how people answer the questions normally. Sometimes even Christians. Why should I let you into heaven? Well, because I've, I've, I've been a good person. I've never murdered anybody. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I do my best. I work hard. All good things. We're not putting any of that down. But we think, look, what I consider to be good and honorable and right, you should accept. That's strange. We wouldn't, we wouldn't give that to anybody else. We wouldn't let anybody else talk to us like that. You should like what I want to do. Well, that's strange. We can go one of two ways when we begin to consider what Jesus is pressing, I think, into his disciples here. We can go one of two ways. We can go the way Old Covenant Israel's religious leadership and therefore the nation went trying to produce or earn God's approval by our outward performance. So as long as we look righteous, we are righteous. So much so that we wouldn't believe we needed God's mercy when it arrived. Right? Just like the Pharisees did. Or we can go the way of Christ's and God's grace by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to meet this demand. Look at verse 22 again. Okay? Look at this. So Peter realizes the fruit or or the the tree is withered, right? And he tells Jesus, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. For what? Right? What does that statement mean here? Lord, the fig tree you cursed, it's, it's barren. Have faith in God to produce fruit, beloved. Have faith in God. This is not a separate or a misplaced teaching that Mark has just said, why don't we, uh, I should put that in here. I'll just kind of make a composite. No, 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 no. This lesson is about barrenness. It's about hypocrisy. To not be like Israel was on this question. To not be false. To not only have outward righteousness that we think is acceptable to God. We must have what they did not in their desire to honor God. Faith, beloved. Faith. The lack of faith was their fatal flaw. The lack of faith. Beloved, the fruit God requires can only be produced by faith in Him. It cannot be produced by the flesh. Look at what, by the way, faith produces. Something far beyond outward righteousness here, but something Supernatural. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, if you have faith in God, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. So not faith in our faith. Right? Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes 
that what he says will come to pass, believes what? Believes whom? God, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, very quickly here, this is not teaching name it, claim it theology, if we can even call it theology, that, that you know, Claim what you want in Jesus' name and you'll have it. Maybe I've told you this story before. Sometimes I can't remember if I have. I'm sorry, but I worked at a Christian bookstore. I will never forget this. Every time I read this passage, this poor lady pops up in my head. She came to pay for her stuff and she can't find her wallet. I tell her her she can't find her wallet and she's rummaging through her purse frantically. And she says, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And she finds her wallet and she goes, see, in the name of Jesus. Well, it would... The wallet was in there. I mean, you just, you've seen a woman's purse, right? <laughs> the Bible, this is, that's really just like a Christian new age thing. It's, it's just the, the whole idea of uh, now you hear, if you've heard the term manifesting, that's what it is. Manifest your future, manifest your what you want and you'll have it you'll receive it you'll put those vibes out in the air and wonder why they don't manifest food in ethiopia right it's i hate it and that, that's the bible teaches extensively on prayer on faith think think of jesus himself back in matthew eighteen nineteen, saying again i say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven if you don't read that in context you're going to come to doubt God and doubt His love for you and doubt the Word. Right? Because you could find two people right now to agree in prayer that cancer would go away forever. But it doesn't go away. You could find another person right now to agree that we're going to hit the mega millions and pray over it. And we don't. So either Jesus is lying or we need to understand Scripture better than we do. Right? He teaches all over on prayer. The verse is not saying that's what will happen. Just... Say what you want, but believe and you'll get whatever you want. We have to understand statements like this in light of Jesus' whole teaching or the scripture's whole teaching on prayer and faith. The emphasis in prayer, what Jesus pushes, what the word pushes is trusting God for his will to be done. That's why Jesus prays the way that he does, even before the cross, praying, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Faith Notice the immediate connection Jesus makes in the text between faith and prayer. Okay? Between faith and prayer. He immediately goes from one to the other. Faith is presented here as being expressed through prayer mainly. And what is prayer? Prayer is the posture of dependence. As the antithesis in context of the way the Pharisees and scribes have come about their righteousness. Prayer was given to advance God's purposes, not ours. Following God with our whole lives is about making His name known, right? Not ours. Therefore, we must have faith, apparently, in order to avoid hypocrisy. How many of us have thought that before? That I have the power within me to avoid being a hypocrite. The Scripture teaches you can't avoid being a hypocrite unless you walk by faith and not by sight. Why would I have ever made the connection in my head that not being a hypocrite has to do with whether or not I have faith in God? And Jesus makes that point here. Faith that God 
will produce what he wants in us, not in our flesh. Have faith in God that even though you're a fig tree that doesn't produce fruit, fruit will be produced if you believe in me. So we're not trying to make things happen, beloved. That's not the way the righteousness that pleases God and the fruit that glorifies him comes about. Do you want to glorify God with your works? Do you really want to do that? Then stop trying to do them. Right? Do, do, do we want to bear fruit that is pleasing to God? Yes. Yes, we do. Then we've got to stop trying to produce it. It's backwards. It's backwards. We will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Who abides now in every believer by grace through faith. That's the sign of the new covenant. Every member of God's new covenant people will produce the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit resides in them and works in them. We do produce God's intended fruit because God has given us what is necessary to do so. It's an amazing thing that many of the laws could be followed by effort, right? And yet God is not glorified by that type of fruit bearing. So apparently the Spirit in us... People all around the world that hate Jesus, hate the gospel, or know nothing about it, do good things for people. God is talking about something else. And we have made the focus of Christianity behavior. And it's not that behavior and our works don't matter. Of course they do. But beloved, what God requires is not something any Joe off the street can just pull off because they want to be a nice person. Right? That's the world's gospel. It's not God's. He's holy, beloved. Holy, we don't even know what that really means. Other than it just, yeah, you're not like us. You're separate. You're sacred, right? We, we must cry out to God for His Spirit to lead us then as Christians. We must remain in the posture of dependence as Christians rather than be led by ourselves. Or listen, we are not going to please Him. Just because we call it fruit doesn't mean it's fruit If that's the case, then Israel should have realized the demands of the law were impossible to keep and should have cried out for grace and welcomed Jesus with open arms when he came. Oh, you're here to save us because you got to help us. We can't do this. We can't keep it perfectly. We've tried very hard. We tried very hard. Make no mistake. At least they revered and respected God's word. They tried, right? Instead, they believed they were righteous enough by this attempted obedience. Actually, they would often add to the law, curiously, to make it obeyable. Ignoring what was actually written and keeping these other things to keep you from breaking this, thinking that was the righteousness God requires. And they claimed their righteousness was just that. And what did they become? They became hypocrites. That's very instructive for us. Hypocrisy is always the result of an emphasis on outward behavior. Hypocrisy is always the result if our goal is what is seen in us, right? Or seen about us. If that's our goal, I want people to know I'm good. I want people to think I'm good. Jesus guarantees, basically, you are a hypocrite. Because you might be very good on the outside and mean well in all of that. That doesn't mean you're glorifying to God or pleasing God. If outward appearance is the goal, hypocrisy will be the result. 
The law is holy and righteous and good, and as such, it's meant to reveal our inability and our desperation. It is not meant to unlock our potential. Just look at the... We can do this. Read verse 25. Look at this verse. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Uh Uh-oh. I... I, It's very hard to forgive people, Lord, especially when they've wronged us deeply. But that's a heavy text. And just let it do its work. Let it do its work. As if Jesus is saying here right at the end, just to be clear... This is the kind of fruit that is required of you. You can't do this unless you lie. So you'll need something other than your will and your effort if you want to glorify God. We are insufficient, beloved. We are all leaves and no fruit. But who is Jesus? The vine. The vine. By the way, Jesus is not teaching us here that you forgive somebody who hasn't repented necessarily, right? For example, think of church discipline, right? Um, If a person won't repent, you remove them from the fellowship of the church. That's very interesting that that's technically the only sin you can be removed for is unrepentance, which would mean there must be something about repentance that is distinctly Christian that other things are not. Right. So what would make somebody look like they don't belong in the church if they're unrepentant? Very interesting. Right. God requires repentance in order to forgive. But when we repent, God forgives. Good works are not really us becoming good people. Good works are us learning to be like Jesus. Whose goodness was on a divine scale. Not an earthly one. Only Jesus is hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So even after all this, after all this and this truth, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If we're offended or injured by another person and that person apologizes and confesses their sin, And asks for forgiveness. Beloved, we can't hold a grudge. We can't hold a grudge. Or we should expect the same from God. So if, if, because what is unforgiveness, and I'm not denying the pain or the hurt that can be done to us. I I know that's a touchy thing. I don't want to make it light when we've been really genuinely hurt. But you do realize when we refuse to forgive, even after someone has tried to be sorry over and over and over again and tried to make up for it and tried to make it right and all these things, refusing to forgive is standing in the place of God and saying, you are not worthy of this from me. This is meant to shake us. Right. We we say things like, well. You know, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Or, you know, just the world says that, you know, you got to forgive people. You got to forgive yourself, whatever that means. You got to move on. And, you know, if, if, if you don't forgive somebody, they're living in your head rent free. All this, right, right, yeah, yeah. What Jesus requires is the forgiveness of Jesus for others. No human being can pull that off without faith. Faith is going to do it. It's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. So good works must come about as a result of saying, all right, you do it. I trust in you. Make me into who you've called me to be. 
You don't become passive. You just quit trying to please God with your works. And it ends up that you glorify Him, which is the desire of the believer. It's just that now Jesus is revealing, here's how you do that. You want to glorify me, praise God, amen. Here's how you do that. The posture of dependence. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. It's not synergism. It's not me and Jesus. It's Jesus. I'll get a new name. Right? Tony's gone. We'll need mercy. We'll need mercy, beloved. He's, Jesus is just taking away any thoughts of standing in our own righteousness by making requirements that are too impossible to meet without grace working through faith. So, in other words, God probably defines forgiveness differently than you and I do. And we can't produce forgiveness like He has created it and practiced it. So we're going to need the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Good works are not the fruit of human intentions. Good works are the fruit of the Spirit, beloved. It will take a miracle. That's why He says, when it seems out of place, have faith in God. You'll produce fruit. Have faith in God. We will need faith in Jesus to perform even this work in us by His Spirit. And, beloved, according to Jesus, we will. God will be glorified. We will produce the fruits that are pleasing to Him. It's prophesied of His new covenant people. We are, in this context, a people ready to forgive the inexcusable in others, as the saying goes, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Do you remember, can we're broken up by... Whole weeks at a time. But all this, this last section here, do you remember just before the triumphal entry back in Mark 10 verse 45, what did Jesus say? And how is it meant to shape our view of works, good works even? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which means Jesus did not come to receive And apparently Israel saw its works as acceptable gifts to God to gain his approval. So what happened is a nation set apart by God under the old covenant with the intention to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation at this point has failed to glorify God and produce the fruit he desired because they've tried to please him with their flesh rather than by faith. You say, okay, so Tony, how do you do that? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I, 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 where, how do I know in me when it's, when I'm doing a good work by faith and when I'm doing a good work by the flesh? I don't really know. So I'm gonna have to trust Jesus. So the answer here is not, alright, I'm just gonna sit here like this until God makes me do something. No, 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 no. Beloved, we live, we work, we worship, we give, we take care, we bear, we, we do all of this. But we need to be trusting God the entire time that He is purifying our hearts so that what is coming out of us is the fruit of the Spirit, meaning we're not trusting in it to be offered up to God. He didn't come to get from us, but to give to us. That's why the new covenant is by grace, so that God will have what He demands. The old covenant was God showing the world one part of it is God showing the world through Israel how great sin is. That was so that Israel's desperate need for a Savior would proclaim to all nations the Messiah who came to deliver all of us. Israel took it as a means apparently of earning His approval as we would have done. 
of his preference for them over others. They ended up barren and cursed as hypocrites deserving of judgment, just like the fig tree. And again, we are not, were not, will not ever be above them. But the Son of Man did come and serve. So, beloved, repent. Repent. Take Jesus. For he is now in the text about to literally do what he said. Give up his life as a ransom for many. Your debt is too much and I will pay it. Jesus shows me that very mercy in every way in my life. He is real. Jesus died to serve us, beloved. So sit down and take the meal. When he asks if you want another drink, take one. When he asks if you want more food, take it. This is how we glorify him. That comes out in real time by us doing that to others, right? We're not moral unless we're mimicking Jesus, there's no other standard of morality. And we can't produce those kinds of works. And from His perfect fullness for us, we have all received grace upon grace. John 1, 16. Now by faith in Christ, we will produce fruit that glorifies God and marks us as His people. So much so that Peter would write to the church, to the people producing the kingdom's fruits in 1 Peter 2 8, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do you do that? Preaching the gospel primarily may be the only thing he's referring to, but Jesus is proclaimed. Every time you forgive somebody that doesn't deserve it. Every time you give to someone who's made their own mess. Every time you care for somebody and all they've ever done is curse you and mock you. Beloved, look, I'm not challenging you to be that kind of person. I'm, I'm, look, we can fill the altars with that, right? I'm, not, I'm, I'm challenging us to finally live by faith. To even do one thing he's called us to do. Because he has called us to do it. There are commands for the new covenant people, beloved. We don't just ignore them. We don't just ignore them. What we need to realize is we need to be reminded as we look at Israel, not placing ourselves over them or forgetting them. We need to say, oh, that's right. I lack the ability to produce the fruit God requires. Israel showed me that. Jesus, I need you. There's no other way for a Christian to live. That's Look, if you don't have a deep prayer life, just start saying little things like this to yourself all the time, all day. Jesus, I need you. Lord, be with me. God, help me. Speak through me. Keep my word. You know, just, just learn to start talking with him. We're that dependent, beloved. That's why he says pray without ceasing. We're thinking, I can't go into a prayer closet 24 hours a day. I have a job. I have a family. Just, that's just our mind. It's just our conversation with Him. But we're that dependent. If prayer is the posture of dependence and we're supposed to do it without ceasing, when do we ever become independent? I 
God's will for His redeemed people is to bear fruit that is pleasing to Him. But this can only ever be the result of faith in Jesus as our only Savior, not as a result of our own efforts. The fruit we must bear, like the Christ-like forgiveness of those who hurt us, beloved, they're mountains that you and I cannot move. It's impossible to produce that apart from faith. So when all our striving to earn God's approval, all of our striving for the approval of people, when all that's over, and all our hope and confidence for salvation and for righteousness are in Christ alone for us, we will glorify Him with our works. The first step in this if, there, if we can put it that way, is repentance. Repentance. We must focus on what Christ has done for us if we are to do good works. We cannot focus on ourselves. It's not like Jesus gets you to the starting line, saves you, and then from here on out, it's up to you. No, 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 no. We're not hypocrites because we struggle with sin. We're hypocrites when our good works are a means to prove that we don't. If that's why we want to be good people, we'll only be a hypocrite. We need an alien righteousness. I need to be invaded and taken over. I need God to keep crashing the walls down in my life. I need Him to keep conforming me, keep pushing me, He's the pestle, I'm the mortar, right? That's the way it has to be. Or nothing that glorifies Him will come out of me. So I just need to hide in the cleft of the rock and look to Christ. We receive our life from Christ. He has prepared these things for us to walk in, in Ephesians 2.10, but we don't produce them. We reflect His grace. We are windows to Christ, beloved, not doors to good behavior. There's nothing for a Christian to brag about. There's nothing for you and I to take credit for. Nothing. Jesus even asks the church through Paul and Corinth, why do you boast as though what's happened to you is not a gift that you've received? That's not Christian life. Beloved, the Christian life is not about our performance. That doesn't mean there isn't good works and performance. It means that's not what it's about. Nobody goes to a football game to watch the offensive line block. You just know when they have it. Right? They talk about the quarterback and the running back and the receivers. Listen, that doesn't mean the offensive line is an important part of the game. There there is no game without an O-line, but nobody's there. People don't normally wear those jerseys. Right? We're not saying it doesn't matter how we live. It matters more than we can fathom how we live. That's, I, I want us to hear that so that it crushes us because we can't do this. If, if we're just a group of people that think, hey, I'm good, you're good, we all try really hard. Beloved, it, 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 we're just going to be hypocrites. And that, what does the world say the minute a Christian messes up? Ah, oh, you're a hypocrite. Why? Because we've made it about, if you're a Christian, you don't mess up. We're not telling them the gospel. That's the, my testimony is not, since I got saved, look who I've become. It wouldn't be a good testimony. 
I haven't progressed nearly as much as I should have. The, the, the testimony is Jesus. Only Jesus, all Jesus, all day, every day. There's nothing else to talk about. We step in the steps Christ has made for us. That's what we do. He gives to me, and that's how I serve him, by receiving. Because what's happening is, as his gifts pass from his hands to mine, before I ever have time to take them as something I produced or earned, they need to pass right to my enemy and to my neighbor. That's the Christian life, which results in glory to God. And it just keeps happening and keeps happening. The fact that we don't really know how to do this should be telling us that I need to be in prayer. I need to repent, right? So through God's people, redeemed people, all nations hear the gospel and gather around the God who made us to worship Him forever as one people bearing fruit for His glory. Beloved, to please God, we must look to Christ. There's no other way to please Him. There's no other way. All other roads lead to barrenness and to hypocrisy. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. 